This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon, and happy 2020. Happy 2020, Liz. I can't believe, I remember when uh, 2000 seemed like it was way in the future, and now uh, it's 20 years in the past. That's hard to believe. It is, all this 21st century business. And I'm one of these holdouts that still is on Facebook. I love sharing pictures and seeing other kids and seeing grandkids. I don't have grandkids, other people's grandkids and uh, where all my nieces and nephews are. But one thing that has just bombarded me this month, this year, was this social media post that's been going around and they're warning everybody to make sure you put 2020 on documents. I thought it was just a silly thing, but then, you know, I got to thinking about it and I wanted you to explain to us why this is necessary or what could of problems could arise from shenanigans if someone took where you had written a 20 and then backdated it and put a 19 or a 18, you know, something on checks or contracts. Well, that's so interesting because it really only is this year, 2020. And the reason for this is that uh, you can change that. You can add to that 20. So if, if, let's say I have a 1720, today's date, and 20. Somebody could add a 19, an 18, a 17, as you mentioned, and backdate that. So that's really the problem. I mean, we, we have to assume the worst in other people, unfortunately, when we enter into a legal agreement. Would it just be on... Uh, the the on checks or on contracts or would this be something that individuals would uh, could happen on anything that's right and so i mean it's just good good practice it's best practice by the way your contract will still be valid uh, if you just if you abbreviate 20 it's just you you know you're you're opening the opportunity for someone to commit fraud the best thing to do obviously is to have them uh, you know, typed out and and not have them handwritten out or have it, you know, have it so that it's really hard for someone to add that information. But if you have it 2020, that should take care of it. Next year, when it's 2021, you can abbreviate 21 because nobody's going to update something to the 22nd century because that really uh, would be de- definitely suspicious. Well, and I think that this would behoove people every January also to put an 01 so someone doesn't put it for November if you're worried about people messing around with your dates. Exactly. And, you know, the whole point of this contract law that we're going to be talking about today really is just about uh, do people keep their promises? And I've always said on the show, if people kept their promises... We wouldn't need lawyers. And, uh, and, you know, and it really is if people also uh, acted fairly and didn't change dates and things like that to, to, for their own benefit. But we know we have to protect ourselves uh, today. And that's why we're here this morning. We're going to be talking about contracts. Is it just for the uh, affluent or is it just for the super rich business wheeler dealer entrepreneurs? Or, you know, what kind of contracts do just regular plain old Mississippians? get involved in. So if you have a question, we would love for you to give us a call. We've got Professor Gershon to tell us what the law is. We're going to talk about contracts today. Our number is 
1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at MPB online.org and folks really we love it when you start calling in but don't wait till 1045 to start calling in start calling in now with your questions let's start at the very beginning what is a contract well you know at, at its core a contract is just an agreement uh, between two people that one person will do something like pay money for someone else to provide a service or property and that agreement uh hopefully is something that uh, is written, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it's just an agreement, and it's a binding agreement. When we talk about contracts in the law, we're talking about something that a court would say is binding, uh, because you can have contracts that are not binding. For example, a contract to do something illegal uh, would not be uh, enforced by the court. So, you know, if gambling is illegal uh, in your state and you uh, engage in a contract to gamble with someone, uh, that's not enforceable. Uh, and so we, we, what we're really talking about is wh- how do we make a contract, how do we make an agreement inf- enforceable between people? Th- that's always struck me. I don't have a lot of relationship with thieves except for watching caper movies. And the honor among thieves has always been interesting to me that why you would trust someone who's doing something illegal. And I think it's funny sometimes you've seen on maybe these court people's court, Judge Judy, Judge Mathis, whatever, when someone is trying to get someone to fulfill their end of a contract, but it's for an illegal item. And so that it's, that is not a enforceable agreement, right? That's right. And in fact, uh, any, any uh, legal endeavor can be uh, entered into as a contract, a not illegal endeavor. Same thing with corporations. Corporations, you know, a, corporate, a corporation agreement is essentially a contract. Uh, so, you know, these, these rules apply to businesses as well. And, and corporations can be uh, established for any legal or lawful purpose. So that's, that's important. We can't, we're not going to enforce contracts that are not legal. That's right. And I'm sure as we do get on, we'll learn contracts that we're parties of that maybe we don't think about. It doesn't occur to us that we're entering into a contract. And we'll start talking a little bit more about what kind of notification we need. So what are some of the requirements for, for, for making a contract? Well, you know, one of the things that we have to have is an offer by somebody uh, to enter into a contract, and then we have to have an acceptance of that offer. So those are the, the two things that are required. Uh, those don't have to be in writing. Uh, we, you know, we'll talk about why it's good to have it in writing, but those don't have to be. So, you know, if, if someone offers you uh, something uh, and you accept that offer, and then the other thing we have to have is consideration. So there has to be some form of payment or some form of service in return uh, for that offer and the acceptance. Both parties give something to the other to make that a binding legal contract. You know, I could enter into a contract with my child and say, hey, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you get all A's in, in school, you know, then I'll buy you a Fitbit or something like that. That's, that's not a binding contract, um, but, that, you know, that's something that um, certainly, you know, it's a promise. And do all contracts have to be in writing for it to be a contract? 
No, they don't. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, where uh, people can get into problems because contracts can be oral. Now, there's some kind of contracts that can't be oral. There's something, an old uh, old statute of frauds that uh, came from British law and, and, you know, it's still in enforcement today that, for example, contracts to sell land have to be in writing. And so you'll always have, uh, you know, that contract has to be in writing. Uh, contracts for services that last more than a year have to be in writing. But, but you know, other than that, they don't have to be. So if I want to have a roofer come and put a roof on my house, um, I could say, hey, you know, I want you to put this roof on my house. I'll say, okay, here's what it's going to cost you. Uh, and none of that has to be in writing, uh, really, but it's always better if it is. There's not a, if it's over 500, 5,000, is there any kind of upper limit for a value amount that has to be in writing? Um, not necessarily. It depends on the transaction, but... Um, I'm going to emphasize to people you don't want to have oral contracts. And the reason you don't want to have oral contracts is because then you get into disputes about who said what. Uh, Whereas a written document is proof of what the parties entered into. So I am going to strongly encourage the listeners, even though you can have an oral contract for certain transactions, not to do it. And the more value there is, the more important it is to put it in writing. Is that why uh, everyone gets a copy of a contract, or you hope that each person gets a contract, a copy of a contract? That's right. You, you do hope that. And a written contract, if it's done right, is a set of instructions. That's all it is. Uh, a will is a set of instructions. I, you know, I've mentioned you know, that, that phrase. I've used that phrase a lot on this show because that's really all it is. It's just a written set of instructions. And so uh, you want both parties to have those instructions because they know what they're supposed to do in the event uh, something happens. You know, when people enter into contracts, everybody's happy. When people enter into businesses, uh, business arrangements together, everybody's happy. They're all excited about what's going to happen and all the good things that will occur. But things go wrong. And so you want a set of instructions to talk about, you know, okay, well, what happens if things go wrong? And, and, and one party can't deliver on the promise that they made. Well, this is very fascinating, and I think we all enter into contracts more often than we think. So if you have a question about contracts, we would love for you to be part of our show. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org and I just love these weird contracts I find them fascinating so did you hear about the story about the Van Halen and the brown M&M clause in their contract I'm going to tell you about that after the break you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's available on the MPB Public Media app, as are, as are all our local shows. We've got a really great back catalog of shows, so you might want to check out some of our past shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Now, this I love this story, and I hope it's true. It was in David Lee Roth's biography, so of course it must be true. But he said that when Van Halen would play stadiums, they put a clause in it to see how well the event space had read the contract. So they would say, in our dressing room, we have to have M&Ms, but no brown ones. And they did that so that because there was technical criteria for the concert and many of the spaces weren't prepared for the weight of all the equipment that the band would use, the band Van Halen would use on stage. So if they saw brown M&Ms, then that meant that the host hadn't read the contract and they were worried about their safety and how the 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 technology and the weight and how that the all the equipment might be set up. So I just found that very uh, interesting that they kind of stuck that red herring, they kind of stuck in that secret clause just to see if the other party was paying attention to it. So we're talking about contracts, and Professor Gershon, you wanted to amend something from earlier our earlier discussion? Oh, well, um, we're going to see about Professor Gershon. We are working with our electronics here this morning, and we hope we're going to get him back. We've been talking about contracts today. We spoke a little bit about that in our first segment. We talked about the importance of having a written contract, that you can do it without being written, but uh, it is always better for everyone involved to have a written contract Exactly. And I'm back. This is good good to have you. Good to be back. I I don't know uh, why we flipped out. But one thing I want to point out is I want to correct one thing from the statute of frauds that I mentioned before about where a contract has to be in writing. Sales of goods of over $500 do have to be in writing. That's uh, as well. But for me, every contract should be in writing. Every contract should be in writing because, as you mentioned, the David Lee Roth thing, you've got to be able to see what my instructions are, what my specific job is, what I'm supposed to perform. Uh, the other thing that I think that I wanted to recommend people, and I, I talk, I've heard uh, Money talks, uh, talk about this as well, is that if, you know, if you've got a 
contract with someone that's being performed over time, like putting a roof on your house or, you know, putting in a new uh, sprinkler system or something like that. You want that in writing, but you also don't want to pay in full until everything is checked out and you know that, uh, you know, the system's working or the roof is, is right. And, and, you know, you can may pay part of it, but not all of it at one time. So we, we want to be we want to be smart about the way we enter into our transactions. That's right. I guess you want to have leverage on both ends. I'll pay you if you do the work, but you've got to do some work before I pay you. And everyone, you know, you keep inching together till you uh, have a completion. One of the things that uh, for a contract, uh, talk about the the promise, the exchange. What what does this mean? Exchange for adequate consideration. Well, adequate consideration is uh, it just means that there has to be something of value given in exchange for the promise by the other person. And now that that thing of value could be services. That thing of value could be, uh, you know, uh, cash. It could be property. And so, uh, you know, in order for the contract to be enforceable, there has to be something passing between the parties of value. Uh, adequate consideration, well, that's that's a tough one in a way. And we talk about it in tax law, too. What does that mean? Um, it is what a willing buyer would pay a willing seller, neither being under compulsion to buy or sell. That's what we usually think about as adequate consideration. So if there, uh, you know, if, if I try to, if I sell a house to my daughter uh, and the house is worth $100,000, I sell it to my daughter for $5, that's clearly not adequate consideration. That's really a gift from me to her. Uh, but if, uh, you know, if on the other hand, if I sell a house that's worth $100,000, but I sell it for ninety because I guess wrong, that would be adequate consideration, even though someone else may have paid me more money for that. We are talking about contracts today. We want everyone to have a great new year. Start off 2020 right. We want you to be informed about your rights. We want to help you to make good decisions in your life. And if you have a question about contracts, we would love for you to call and participate in this show in legal terms. Our number is one 877 MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You could also send us an email. Our address is legal terms at mpbonline.org. If let's talk about, I, I guess it's always good to use a concrete example. You mentioned, uh, you know, selling a house. So if someone makes an offer to enter into a contract, tell about what if, if someone makes a counter offer or, you know, you know, Professor Gershon, I have this cute dog at my house and I'll sell it to you for uh, $300. What if you came back and said, well, Liz, I, I, I'd love you to have your dog, but how about $100? What what does the counter offer do to the first offer? Well, first of all, I gotta tell you, I, I have my dog, and this will be the last <laughs> dog that I'm going to have in my life. And so thank you very much. But uh, and she's a great dog, but this is it. But, um, you know, the, uh, the, the it's a great question because you, in order to have a contract, you have to have an offer and an acceptance. When I make a counteroffer, I am, in effect, rejecting your offer. 
And so, uh, you know, you can accept my counter offer. So now you're the person who would be making the acceptance. And so if I, if I offered you $100 for the dog instead of 300 um, then you could accept that. And then we would have a contract at that level. But if you reject my counter offer, uh, I can't go back and say, okay, now, you know, now you have to take the $300. You know, I'll take your first offer because I've already, in essence, by counter offering, rejected that offer. So you would have to, again, offer me that the dog for $300 if I wanted to, uh, to, to decide, change my mind and pay that. So we have to, you know, have an offer plus an acceptance and a counter offer as a rejection of that offer. When, and when are there a lot of counter offers i you know we think about uh with a a house because we don't really live in that much of a bartering or haggling society in the united states i know other countries that's more common where might some ways that you negotiate this way with prices cars I mean, definitely oh. with cars you know uh and so um you know it, it and, and that's where you know you start talking about adequate consideration with cars i always feel like i pay more for a car than maybe the next person who walked in because i i just at some point hate you know having a haggle over stuff and but that's where that's where you would have offer and counter offer they say okay here's what we're going to sell the car to you for uh you could agree to that at that point most of us realize that the whole process requires us to say, well, you know, um, I think you need to come down on this price. And then they go and talk to their manager and come, you know, it's, it's a classic thing. But that is counter and offer and counter offer, uh, you know, and typically uh, both parties want to enter into that transaction and, and, and come to an agreement at some level. And then you have the contract. All right. So let's go. Let's uh, let's go what, talk about what we've done a little bit so far. So to have a contract, there has to be agreement. We just we just mentioned that. Right. That's right. And then there has to be the, the, the payment or consideration. What are some types of consideration? Well, it's funny. In law school, we say merely a peppercorn can be a consideration. It just depends on the circumstances to what uh, what is uh, you know, required. But consideration could be services. Consideration can be, you know, you go to the grocery store and you give them cash in exchange for their groceries. That's actually you are entering into a contract at that point to buy buy that bread or buy those groceries, uh, you know, that we don't call it that. We don't think of it that way, but that's exactly what's happening because uh, we are entering to a, into a transaction uh, with the grocery store. So we, we're involved in, in contractual relationships and, and agreements that involve consideration all the time. Uh, anytime we buy things, anytime we buy goods or services, we are exchanging money for services, for property. That's what we talk about with adequate consideration. Uh, you know, to make them binding, there has to be agreement. And and where people get into conflict is, I thought we were agreeing to do one thing, and you thought we were agreeing to do something else. And again, that's why we want to put it in writing because a court's going to interpret what we've written down. They're not going to be concerned about what I thought going into that writing or what you thought going into that writing. They're going to look at the writing itself because that's the best way to determine what we agree to. So, it, you know, it, it could be a money exchange or it could be, well, if you mow my lawn, I'll wash your car. That's right. And sometimes it could be conditioned. Sometimes, you know, we, we, people say, I'll buy your house if I can sell my house. And so we'll enter into a conditional contract that says, hey, you know, I am going to buy your house if I can sell my house within the next three months. Uh, and so that, that contract will be binding if, in fact, I do sell my house in the next three months. 
Uh, but if I can't, then we don't have a contract because the condition was not met. All right. Well, we've got a call. Let's go to John, who's called in from Mobile. John, thanks for being a part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, Liz. Thank you. I had a question uh, for Dr. Gershon about a contract that I seem to be in that I never actually entered into. And um, I'd like to know what my course could be. Um, about nine, maybe ten years ago, I was sent uh, by an attorney the uh, settlement of an estate which granted me a small house and a timeshare. Now, the problem, of course, is the timeshare. Uh, this was not my purchase. The timeshare was not my purchase. It was a relative's purchase. And uh, on the papers, uh, these two assets were listed. Uh, I remember crossing out the timeshare and writing, do not want, and sent it back to the attorney and uh, received notice from the state uh, from the uh, state of Alabama uh, sometime later that I was now the proud owner of the house and the timeshare. And since then, it has been a drain on my finances. I'm now on uh, Social Security, about half of what the average is nationally, and um, uh, Medicare. So this this thing with its um, uh, monthly maintenance fees is a serious drain. I could use the money, and I want to get rid of this thing. I had to pay back uh, at the outset. I had to pay back maintenance fees that the previous owner did not pay. So I settled that up, and since then they've they've just been billing me. I've used it. I think the timeshare maybe four times out of ten years, and it is of really no value to me. Um, I don't like the thing. It's not a good week, and et cetera. What can I do? Can I go appeal to a uh, the court personally instead of going through an attorney? Because I understand that going to some attorneys, uh, well, some attorneys make a lot of money trying or pretending to try to get people out of timeshares. Well, you know, I, I, let me let me back up a little bit because this has been going on for ten years. I think you said. Yeah. All right, so that's passed away in 2009. Well, I wish I wish I had better news. I do think you do need to go to an attorney to help you get out of the timeshare. I, I if I could have advised you 10 years ago, you know, you, you scratched out the, uh, the the timeshare. There is a way to disclaim a and so maybe other people can benefit from this. Uh, you know, you can, there's a way to disclaim assets from an estate. You know, so let's say you get something that is a liability, like this timeshare. You can file a disclaimer, but there, but it has to be uh, in writing and filed with with uh, you know the, with the the court, um, and it can't just be a you know scratch out. So there is a way to do that for people to to turn that down. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think you did that. So now you know it's ten years later. Um, in a way, you've kind of accepted this burden over this time. I would, I would go to a lawyer who can help you. People do get out of these timeshares. I think uh, courts are sympathetic to the fact that uh, people are locked into timeshares. I, it may cost you money now to deal with a lawyer to do that, but it would, it would help you in the long run, and then you can get out from under this. But you know, I wish, I wish, uh, I wish you luck. I, I, you know, I'm sorry that you're in this situation, but for the other listeners, if you get an asset from an estate. 
you know, talk to a lawyer or you know, about how to disclaim that asset if it's something that's a liability. You know, if you got you know something that has toxic waste in it or something like that, you don't want. Uh, you, you can just claim it. Oh, you've got me a little bit worried now, I, Professor Gershon. I know when my father passed away in uh, 2000, uh, or no, actually it was 92, I was uh, inherited some property at an interchange in Little Rock, Arkansas, that it had a billboard on it, but it was a wetlands and really wasn't good for anything, and I didn't want it, and I wonder. <laughs> I guess I would know if I still inherited that or something. You've you've given me something to think about, uh, John. I'm I'm sorry that uh, he w- Professor Gershon couldn't give you any more specific advice for you, other than you really do need to see an attorney. But that is good to know with other individuals that you can file a disclaim assets from an estate if you inherit something that you really don't want. We're talking with Professor Richard Gershon, uh, who is helping us start the new year confident dealing with contracts. We hope you'll give us a call. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And you could also send us an email to our address legalterms at mpbonline.org should you read all the fine print of a contract sometimes there's just loads of it we're going to tell you a story about why you should when we come back from the break you're listening to in legal terms on mpb think radio Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or at least find us. There's lots of different podcasting platforms. I happen to like Podcast Addict. My husband's a Stitcher person. But you download it to your phone. You touch a plus, and that took me to a page to search for podcasts. Then you type in the name of the podcast you want, like in legal terms, put it in the search area, and it'll bring up our show. Then you're able to touch the photo. You can subscribe it or see what episodes are up, see our past episodes. If you subscribe, you're also notified when new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we are talking about contracts, and I loved this story. Last year, a Georgia school teacher kind of essentially won $10,000 from a travel insurance company for reading the fine print. She she got some travel insurance for a trip and you know they say, you know, click here for terms and conditions for the contract and she read through it and on page 7 it said 
if you've read this far, then you are one of the very few customers to review all of their policy documentation. And the company had updated their contact their contract the day before, and she was the first person to find that clause. And they just said notify them, and she won $10,000, which I guess gave pub- publicity for the travel insurance company, but also reminded people to read the little itty-bitty bits in your contracts. What, are, that's I'm pretty sorry. interesting to me. I love that story, and they are. There are they are instructions. That's right, you know. And so, I always tell my students, one day I haven't done it yet. I'm going to give an exam with a, a big fact pattern, and then the instructions are going to say, "Turn in your paper, have a good break." You know, don't write anything. And I, I've heard of teachers that do that just to see if people read instructions. Now, I have to admit, Liz, when I click on things, when I download an app, like a podcast app, for example, to you know to get the podcast of the show. I don't read everything I should, and, and that's bad. But, you know, we all ought to be thinking more about that because we don't know what we're signing away uh, when, we, when we sign, uh, when we click agree on, on some of these uh, websites. All right. Well, we've got a couple of calls. We're going to talk to Wit in Hattiesburg. Wit, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Good morning. I had a question about international contracts. Great. Okay, so here's my question. Um, within the United States, if a person doesn't obey the, the guidelines of a contract or the, the rules of a contract, there are enforcement mechanisms designed to deal with them and uh, to make sure that all contracts thereby have some sort of uh, um, behind them because if you don't uphold your end, then there is something that will happen. Now, in terms of international, theoretically, I suppose the U.N. and the World Court is there. But as as recent years have seen in the United States and other countries, there have been a lot of major deals where one party has just walked out of the contract and nothing can really be done. So what I'm wondering is um, what motivates a corporation or a government to engage in any kind of international contract when there's no way to have anything happen if one party simply leaves? It's a great question. It really is something that, you know, even with the U.S. contracts, you, you could have a choice of law clause in the contract. So you can actually choose which law is going to govern the contract. And if I'm a U.S. uh uh, business and I'm doing uh, business internationally and I think that the United States laws are going to be beneficial to me as opposed to maybe a country where there's really not a rule of law it would behoove me to make sure that you know that I could uh, eventually end up in a U.S. court to uh, to enforce the contract so uh, part of that is just thinking and talking I mean, that's where lawyers who deal with international business uh, are very careful to make sure that that they have a choice of law, that they have uh, really thought about um, how to enforce this contract. The fact is that uh, business overseas can be lucrative, and that's why people take the risk of entering into those contracts, and 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 maybe there is a possibility somebody walks away, but if, you, if the contract is well written, usually there can be protections. Whit, does that help you understand a little bit? Yes, it does. I guess my one other quick comment is when it comes to uh, governments, I'm thinking particularly about, uh, for example, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. 
where uh, the United States entered into a contract with many, uh, almost all other nations, and then after a change of administration, uh, reneged on their obligations in the contract. And so I'm wondering, uh, when something very powerful, more powerful than a business, is in a contract and it chooses to leave, uh, what consequences, if any, are there for that party? That's a great. That's a great question as well. Usually, usually when countries deal with each other, they deal with it in terms of treaties. Um, and really, uh, you know, when you think about um, private parties, uh, that's where we have enforceability. It's much harder to enforce contracts between between governments because you know we're really talking about uh, you know pulling out or, or changing our minds on a, on a, on an issue. Uh, and uh, and so I. I Wish there was some way to, to enforce our agreement with with the Paris Accords. I really do, and the Paris uh, 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 Environmental uh, Agreement. But um, that's just you know governments can change their minds, and, and so they're not bound the same way that private people are uh, in those situations. Well, thanks for calling in today. So, Professor Gershon, would that be a difference between an agreement and a contract, or all agreements, contracts, or you know, even with between countries? Do as as Americans understand a contract? Do all of these elements have to be agreed upon? Well, that's a great question too, because really, you know, an agreement could be enforceable, could be a contract, uh, but it doesn't have to be. And the terms of the agreement might include a way for parties to get out of the agreement. And so, you know, if that if that situation is there, then you know, it could be that either party could mutually say, "Okay, well, you know, we, this worked for us for a while, but now we're getting out of this agreement." Uh, and so, think about um, terminable at will uh, employment contracts are one of those. You know, that yeah, there's a contract, there's an agreement, but. If, if the employer decides, you know, that, that for whatever reason they want to part ways with the employee, they can do that because that's in the contract itself. You know, so I'm sure that when when the uh, United States and other countries enter into these agreements, they have some some way uh, to withdraw from the agreement uh, written into the contract itself or into the agreement itself. All right. We've got Bill who has called in from Starkville. Bill, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead. I have uh, a situation where a, uh, uh, a homestead in the family was was uh, posted to sell for, let's say, $200,000. And uh, after, uh, uh, and I, I'm almost sure this was written out and, and emailed around to, to individuals and certainly anybody who was interested, and the price uh, fixed on it, uh, the price set on it, and that's whether or not it was fixed is what I'm interested in. And during the process of, uh, of uh, speaking and listening to uh, offers, uh, somebody came in and said they were, were willing to pay more. And I wanted to know uh, what, what does that mean? Uh, and could we have avoided a problem by suggesting that the minimum price was uh, $200,000? And uh, but anyway, a family member who was attached to the uh, or interested or loved the uh, the homestead and uh, could afford it uh, outbid the the other people who I think it was only one or two persons who were interested. And I just wondered, uh, how does a contract? Uh, what sort of? There was no problem, uh, no fight, uh, and we got the top price. I just wondered. 
and this was among a, a homestead that was owned by by a number of cousins, four cousins, in fact. But so that's my question. I, I think it's a great question. I, I think you actually answered it because you really, if you had put said the minimum bid, bid is two hundred thousand dollars, and we will accept the highest bid, there would have been no issue at all. But you raise a great question because what if what if you had uh, what if it was not uh, something like that? But what if I sold, was selling my house to someone and they offered me a price and I accepted their offer, and then somebody else came in a week later and wanted to give me more? Once I accept that offer, I can't. I can't get out of that contract without breaching that contract. And the truth is, a lot of times why people breach contracts is because they get a better deal. But it's nonetheless a breach of contract. So once I've, once I've had an offer and an acceptance and consideration paid, uh, then uh, that is a contract. And just because somebody comes along with a better deal doesn't mean I can get out of that particular contract. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Bill, we're so glad that you've called in today. And if we've got a little bit time left, if anyone else would like to participate in our show, please give us a call. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We've learned that uh, for contract, there's a, a you have to have an agreement on how long things last. But there's a trick. I love these little tricks uh, to make a contract last a long time. We're going to tell you about that when we come back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, In Legal Terms, dot mpbonline.org it's also available on the mpb public media app as are all our local shows i'm liz gill i'm here with professor richard gershon from the university of mississippi school of law now we've we've talked about different parts of a contract uh, one of the things that there has to be an agreement and i suppose uh, you know you have to have an agreement on how long this uh, contract will last, but this was something I hadn't heard of. The Royal Lives Clause law in legal definition. Royal Lives Clause is a contract clause which provides that a certain right must be exercised within the lifetime plus 21 years of the last living descendant of a British monarch. And that descendant is alive when the contract was made. And the clause is applied in the United Kingdom, and it usually affects trusts or options to acquire property. So maybe uh, Professor Gershon would say, well, Liz, you can buy my house, and you have until the last living descendant of, uh, I don't know, Queen... Victoria, or I don't know, or, you know, Queen Elizabeth is alive. And uh, these kind of transactions must vest before the end of a maximum period or else it will be void. And in the U.S., they do it sometimes called the President's Lives 
clause. So Jay could buy my house as long as the last living descendant of President Kennedy is is still around. So until, I guess, Caroline Kennedy, when she passes away, then the clause would end. Uh, have you ever seen this, Professor Gershon? I haven't seen anything like that, but I have seen uh, there. There is something called the rule against perpetuities that is generally applied, or uh, you know, in different ways in different states. But the the old British rule was that uh, an interest in property uh, passing to someone had to vest, if at all, within lives in being plus twenty one years. So it had to be someone who was already in existence plus the next generation. Twenty one years being the next generation. So uh, you know that we did. What we don't want is to have property just just hanging out there. We don't know who owns it. We don't want rights hanging out there. We don't know who owns it. So we want we want this property to uh, vest or this right to vest within a certain time frame. Uh, it can be a pretty long time frame so that we don't have uncertainty in property because then nobody else can buy it or nobody else can acquire it. So, um, you know, that's that, you know, if you talk to law students, they cringe any time you talk about the rule against perpetuities. Well, that I, I find it all interesting. So when we've talked about contracts, you have to be in agreement. There has to be some kind of consideration. You do this, I'll do that. It has to be lawful, so I can't sell you, I don't know, marijuana, or I can't sell you something I'm about to go steal from Jay's office. Jay uh, would never do that. Um, what are some... Uh, some other, t- you know, what are what are some types of of contracts? We, you know, we've talked about, you know, buying land. You mentioned employment contact tracks. Uh, partnership agreements. So any business agreement is is really a, a contract. Uh, leases. We've had we've had uh, Desiree Hensley, for example, talking from our faculty, talking about leases and, and landlord and tenant law. Well, a lease is a contract. So we, we engage in contracts all the time going, as you mentioned, uh, social media, you know, the agreements that we make to uh, download an app or that we go on uh, Facebook and they say we've updated our cookies. Do you accept that? Uh, you know, that there, that is a contract that we're that's an agreement that we're making. So uh, uh, when I got my uh, my my grocery uh, favorite customer card. I was entering into a contract. Uh, some contracts are more important than others. That one's probably less important. I don't think I've done anything too specifically bad for that, other than giving them the access to my information so they can send me coupons that, that relate to me. But, you know, I, we, we really need to be careful about what it is we're signing and what it is we're agreeing to, because what we're agreeing to can be binding, uh, and that's important. One thing I want to point out, though, is that um, in Mississippi, for example, you can't enter into a contract unless you're 21. Uh, so we have to, the person that can't, we can't enter into contract with the minors. Um, I don't know if you ever remember record clubs, Liz. Oh, Columbia House, Columbia House. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, a lot of the young, younger listeners are going to be wondering what even a record is. But there used to be that you could get a record sent to your house and then you, you, uh, if you, you could uh, keep it and they'll keep sending you records. And you either had to send them back or you had to send them money. And where those record companies got in trouble was they were doing that uh, with minors. There were a lot of 16 and 15 and 16 year olds who were joining the record club and they couldn't enforce those contracts because they were minors. That is very interesting. I find that I find that very interesting. And when you know, when you mention about entering into a contract and, you know, we heard about John who felt like he entered into a contract without accepting it. 
you know, sometimes if if you're going to go on Twitter, the very first thing you have to do is say you accept their contract. And if you don't accept it, you don't get to go on Twitter. That's right. I mean, it doesn't mean that the power is equal and, and, and a contract necessarily, you know, because if you want something, then. Uh, you have to go agree with those terms. The other thing that we all do regularly that, that really bothers me is that we agree to mandatory arbitration of disputes with companies uh, and waive our right to a jury trial. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if we want to get certain services or enter into certain uh, agreements or, you know, uh, be online, uh, a lot of times we end up in, in requiring they require us to enter into mandatory arbitration. We don't really have any power to, to argue about that. If we in fact, we want that service. And that's something I guess I'm going to toot my horn. I was very proud of myself you know, last summer. I think my bank I had a Visa card with got bought by another bank, and they sent an email that said, you have to abide by arbitration unless you say no. And uh, it wasn't, you have to abide by arbitration or you have to give up your Visa card. They gave me an option to say no, so I I said no. And But I wonder how many people didn't say no because they didn't read the little notification that they got. That's exactly it. So it goes back to, you know, know what we are agreeing to. That's very important. Well, I hope we have a great 2020. Make sure you put that whole thing out on all of your documents this year. And if within legal terms, we're really going to strive to to educate you, to bring you guests that are of service, that help you with your life. You know, send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org if you have an idea of something you would love to hear us talk about for an hour. Professor Gerson, I hope you have a great 2020. When do the kids show back up, the, those kiddos at the university? Well, we actually have some of the uh, the first-year students are here for intercession now, but then uh, in a couple of weeks uh, after Martin Luther King Day is the first day of classes for all of us. And what will you be teaching this semester? Uh, federal income tax, too, which is property tax, uh, taxation of property law, and, uh, and, and then I'll also be teaching ethics because I need to learn ethics. <laughs> Everybody needs to learn ethics. So thank you so much. We appreciate you volunteering your time each week. We appreciate Michelle McAdoo and Jay White who help us here. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, Relatively Speaking. But we want you to join us next Tuesday at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.